Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Brittany Spanos and Rob Sheffield, and we're going to talk about Rob's amazing Harry Styles cover story and all things Harry Styles. Rob, I'll start out by just grounding us in some facts. There is a Harry Styles album that you saw some of being recorded, or there's music coming. What's the deal with it? What's going on with his next album? It's coming when it's coming. There's no official release date, and they haven't divulged any of the details, like the title or anything like that. I can tell you it's awesome. I can definitely tell you it's awesome. Can you say a little bit more about what you heard in addition to the song you apparently sang some backup vocals on? Describe it as very varied, but absolutely intense and soulful and true and really remarkably expansive. I just think it's great. It's going to be fantastic. And it is, again, kind of a rock album in the sense that it's live instrumentation by these guys he plays with, and it's in that vein again, like the last one. Yeah, he loves the studio process. It's funny for somebody who loves performing so much that he also loves hibernating in the studio so much. And he liked to say that One Direction never got to go into the studio and make an album. And he said, that's something we never got to experience as a band. We never went into the studio and said, we're making an album. And he said, I'm always jealous of bands that got to do it that way of, we're going into the studio, we're making an album, all hands on deck, and nobody leaves till it's done. And so he really clearly enjoyed that experience with his first album, where he really created an incredibly unified and personal record. So what does that mean about the 1D sessions? Break that a little bit more. Because like, they obviously made albums. <laughs> so yes, what, and they so made what, great albums, yeah. but they made them on the road. So they were touring, and while they were touring, they would duck into a studio and do a, a song, a track at a time. But they didn't have the thing of putting the touring on hold, putting everything else on hold, and just going into the studio and making these albums. It was always a very quick process, too. Like, it was tour, and then first single would come pretty quickly after each tour would end. Like, I feel like it was like a clockwork with the fall, where it'd be after a massive tour, there would be another One Direction album. And there were one a year, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of such a startlingly high quality, mm -hmm. but they were made, you know, in a rush. Yeah. Another broad question before we get back into the nitty gritty. One thing that fascinates me is the intensity of Harry's fan base, which I completely understand. It makes sense. It's interesting, without divulging internal information, I can say that Rob's story was very well read online. And it's fascinating to me that the intensity of the readership for Harry Styles' story is, again, without divulging internal information, is more <laughs> intense than people who, if you just judge by streaming numbers, are quote-unquote bigger. But more people are interested in like reading about Harry Styles and the intensity of the fandom seems different. What do you make of that disparity between like he does great but it's not like he's the king of streaming it's not like he's streaming like Migos or something and yet there is this intensity of fan base what do you think that's about I don't know if that's the kind of thing you ever give any thought to Harry I mean and all of One Direction entirely have had such a very personal relationship with a lot of their fans if you look at the way that they really started out is that they did a lot of live streams before it was a thing that artists totally. did they were interacting they were following them on Twitter on Instagram like they were really involved with them online. And I think there is this ownership and also this very intimate relationship that's existed for a long time. And Harry's really reclaimed a lot of his privacy since One Direction, even towards the end of One Direction. I think they all really felt like this need to reclaim themselves, their privacy, their lives outside of the band, outside of celebrity, outside of sort of the tabloidiness that was coming with being the biggest boy band in the world. And so I think for Harry, he's lived a very private life. He's lived a very quiet life. You saw him on tour. That was, you know, really exciting. But that came after a couple years of him being pretty low key, 
fans not really knowing what was going on, like not knowing when the music was coming, what it would sound like, who he would emerge as a solo artist. And so I think that when you get these glimpses, these really fantastically written and very intimate glimpses of Harry as himself beyond just One Direction and beyond the music, of course, the fans are flocking to that and they they crave that and they want to see this artist that they love kind of be himself outside of everything that I have seen for a long time or want to perceive about him. I think you're exactly right. And I also think that Harry has avoided overexposure mm-hmm. in the current like social media. He's not out there Instagramming every moment of his life. He's living and we'll get into it in many ways, an admirably and enviably throwback sort of 70s rock star lifestyle in more ways than one. And it does create that hunger for information. It really plays to our strengths as an institution at Rolling Stone when you have an Adele, not to take it to something that happened to be a story I wrote, but it's just like when you get with Adele after she hasn't had an album out for two years, it means that no one's heard jack shit from Adele for two years. And it's a little bit like, slightly less, but a little bit like that with Harry. Mm -hmm. To segue into that lifestyle, he really is, he's a free man in Los Angeles. He is living his best life. A plus, (laughs) A plus Joni content. I think it's B plus, but yeah. A plus, that's A plus. Well, something he said really explicitly was that first solo tour that he did really changed his life and changed how he thought of himself. Just that he could go in cold, basically starting from scratch in some ways and not in others, but the people came out to see him. And something that really surprised me was how much he said that when he was with One Direction, he was always afraid of letting the team down. He was afraid Mm -hmm. of singing the wrong note, saying the wrong thing. And he's very conscious of wanting to protect the rest of the team and not let them down. And he was always worried about making mistakes. And he said what he learned on the solo tour was people just want to see him be himself. And if he makes a mistake, if he sings the wrong note, everybody just loves it. And that was really kind of a revelation for him. And he talked a lot about how the fans really changed his life on that tour, their sort of acceptance of him in going in this new direction. And yet it's also about how he's living and how he's making art, which includes like the intake of mushrooms. And he's just, (laughs) and he did this without, as you said, he's not rebelling against his boy band past. He loves his pop past, but he's growing up as a person. How do you see this point in his life in addition to his art? Well, he very specifically sees his link with the band as a positive thing. And he has never slagged them off. He joked about in the interview where he said it's customary for somebody to get out of a band and go, that wasn't me. This is the real me. And he's very much reacting against that. He's like, no, that was me. In his solo show, he makes a point of singing What Makes You Beautiful, Mm -hmm. which was the very first One Direction hit, at least the first one I heard back in 2011. And he said he does that to show that bond with the fans and with the history that all that history is coming along with them. And he's saying, if there was a One Direction song that I was going to be sick of doing live, it would be that one. <laughs> and he says, you know, I do it because I'm a different person than I was eight years ago. You listening to it, you're a different person than you were eight years ago. And let's celebrate that history that we have together. And that's such an uncommon thing for people leaving behind a band to even do. You know, like Justin Timberlake doesn't do sync songs ever. You know, Absolutely. like people aren't doing that at all. Yeah, people forget that even after Paul McCartney left the Beatles, mm-hmm. He formed Wings, and Wings refused to do any Beatles songs for yeah. the first six years of their existence. People who went to see Wings in 1973 were not getting Hey Jude. Mm-hmm. It's really rare for somebody to be able to move beyond a band like that and just say, yes, these songs are part of our shared history. Mm-hmm. It does seem like One Direction sound, which for people who don't know, was pretty rock-oriented in a very literal sense. There were guitars, and it, it was definitely more rock than sort of modern R&B or hip-hop influenced, which sort of set them apart. And I think that 
did represent a lot of the band members' taste. It certainly represented Harry's taste. It represented almost everyone except Zayn, who was a hip-hop and R&B fan. And that's one of the reasons, and I prep personality reasons as well, that he was understandably itching to get out of there because he was the one who's like, it didn't represent me. I was held back. But for Harry, it was him. Yeah, and mm-hmm. for someone like Niall, who was really got more and more and more comfortable with expressing what you know, his solo records have shown is his authentic musical personality and that One Direction was the kind of group where they all had their different musical personalities. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious if there's any rock stuff they've heard from the new record. Well, let's talk more about Kiwi. (laughs) I mean, I think that's the fun part about how you described his recording process, which was so great to kind of read about this, you know, very fun live kind of on the cuff take that he's doing with a lot of his music for the new album, because I feel like a lot of his debut was better experienced live like it was definitely an album made to be performed in both theaters and arenas that album translated so well to every venue that saw him many times on both legs of the door so i think he it they translated really well to those experiences and he made those to really be part of this really communal experience for a lot of his fans and for people who were listening to his music for the first time who may not have even liked One Direction and were suddenly like, oh, I get Harry Styles now or I love this album because that was also the really fascinating thing about who was coming to those shows too. But yeah, I think those songs, when you see them live, you'll change your tune. Remember, remember <laughs> the first time we saw him live and he did Kiwi three times? Yes, it was amazing. Th- that is my favorite of the rock so, songs on the album. So, I don't some, know, is, that the, is that the fan's favorite of oh, the rock yeah. songs? Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. That yeah. Is the, yeah. So something he said was that he used to have Kiwi early in the set, but then for the encore, people would just scream for him to play Kiwi again. So mm-hmm. he said we just had to push Kiwi to the end because <laughs> people would just keep screaming for it the rest of the night. <laughs> Let's hear Kiwi. Yeah. Such a pretty face on a pretty Definitely the the best Arctic Monkeys song of the past few years, yes, for sure. <laughs> Harry could have done I Bet You Look Good on the dance floor, but Arctic Monkeys couldn't have done Kiwi. That's real. That's real. It's absolutely true. <laughs> but also something I love about that first album is it's very crafted as an album. It's designed to be listened to from beginning to end mm-hmm. as a personal statement. And he's a classicist about making albums. He mm-hmm. doesn't want them to be too long, too sloppy. He talks about how Sergeant Pepper, just 13 songs. Pet Sounds, 13 songs. The first album is, I think, 10 songs. Yeah. yeah. Coming September 15th to PBS, Country Music, a new series from acclaimed filmmaker Ken Burns. Explore the remarkable stories from the people and places behind a true American art form through interviews with more than 80 country stars, including Dolly Parton, Willie Nelson, Charlie Pride, Dwight Yoakam, Roseanne Cash, Garth Brooks, and many more. Featuring never-before-seen footage and photographs, you'll meet the Carters, the first family of country music, go honky-tonking with Hank Williams, and sing along with Patsy Cline. Head to Memphis, where Elvis Presley met Johnny Cash, discover Loretta Lynn in Butcher Hollow, Kentucky, and see how Nashville became the home of the Grand Ole Opry. It's a story of America, one song at a time. Premieres Sunday, September 15th at 8, 7 central on PBS and the PBS Video app. I think we've talked about this before on the show, but it's hard to underplay the audaciousness of being someone who comes from a big boy band, albeit one that did, again, mostly rock-oriented songs, and coming out with your solo debut as a solo quote-unquote pop artist and coming out with an album that could have been made in 1975 in this decade. It's extraordinarily audacious, and I salute him for it, you know? Yeah, and I think that's the thing, too, with a lot of the last, you know, three One Direction albums was that 
those albums did not sound like anything on pop radio. Like they were coming out at a time when EDM was becoming massive and a lot of the big hits were people partnering with a lot of the major dance music producers and making a lot of synth heavy sounds, a lot of computerized music. There was a real lack of music that sounded kind of folky, rocky, and that sort of weird period where there was a lot of Mumfordy music for a while and then it died down and all of a sudden One Direction comes up and there's something that's completely atypical of what was happening on the radio then. And that's really fascinating about what's been happening with Harry and Niall and the dudes from One Direction now going solo is that they're kind of still doing that. Like they're still making music that is on their terms and what they want to listen to. And the fans are responding well to it because they know that's who they are as musicians and artists. Yeah. First time I heard Story of My Life, I thought this sounds like it could be a replacement Mm -hmm. song if they had taken the next step in terms of production. But just the sort of heartfelt storytelling of it, that was something that they did People who just would see a picture of One Direction and just dismiss them and assume that they Mm -hmm. did corny choreography and stuff like that. They were always a band that was growing and learning. And that's the thing about Story of My Life, too, is that I feel like when I spoke to a lot of people who did not listen to One Direction, didn't want to listen to One Direction, that song always stuck out to them. That was always a song that brought them to the group. They wanted to hear more after that. So that's really fascinating that that song was kind of that barrier breaker for them. Let's start to get in the subject of Harry's tastes, which are, are broad and fascinating. And I think a big part of your article was getting into what he's into. So maybe start by how did he get into the aesthetic, especially the 70s stuff that he's into in the first place? What, what's the story behind that? He grew up with that. He was raised on rock and roll. like, And he talks about the first time he was in the car with his dad and he heard, shine on you crazy diamond. His dad was into Pink Floyd and playing him Pink Floyd. And he said, wow, a song like can go like this for 13 minutes? And hmm. if you went to see his solo show last year, he would do this mix of songs that he'd play over the speakers before he went on. And he would play Shine On You Crazy mm-hmm. Diamond, all 13 minutes of it. He would play Madam George by Van Morrison, <laughs> which is nine minutes. Very strange to hear those songs over the speakers (laughs) in a room like that. So he's very much deeply immersed in music history and always has been. Somewhat of a side note, but you know, this was young people's music at one point. People forget. I mean, Astro Weeks was made by a 23-year-old guy. (laughs) Absolutely. People forget, you know, just because they're all 75 years old now doesn't mean they were once young, just like Harry Styles. But where did it go from there? I mean, especially in the last few years, he's obviously pursued a lot of directions in pop culture and in music and studied, really. You know, like you said about him being... I love that, a free man in Los Angeles, which is like absolutely true. He's the kind of person who, if he listens to Joni Mitchell on Blue and gets obsessed with that record, he's like, I want to learn to play the dulcimer. You know what? I want a dulcimer built by literally the same person (laughs) who built Joni Mitchell's dulcimer 50 years ago. Her name is Joellen Lapidus, Luthier of the Year. She has made the dulcimer (laughs) the instrument of 2019. And Harry found her and she's still living, still thriving, still building musical instruments And she told Harry to come over and she built him a dulcimer and taught him how to play, gave him a lesson right there. I love just that level of obsession where you hear Harry play a dulcimer and you know it's not just inspired by Joni Mitchell. He made sure he got it built by the same person who built Joni Mitchell's dulcimer. It must be said that in Taylor Swift's journals that just came out with her new album she does mention uh, listening to blue and buying a dulcimer (laughs) absolutely it's it's sort of like the dulcimer is yes the dulcimer is taking over it's going to be the big sound of 
Hot Girl Summer has become well, Dulcimer Joni Autumn. What that reminds me of is I know someone whose parents were divorced and they sat between them at an event and their parents, unbeknownst to each other, were making the same comments in their ear about what was happening. So it's just like, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. So I want to take a moment and talk about Vivid Seats. Staying at home is great, but eventually you just got to get out of the house. Whether you go out to see your favorite band or go cheer on your favorite team in person, you got to get out of the house. You got to have a night out. And with Vivid Seats, you can attend the concert of your choice, the sports event of your choice, whatever event you're looking for at a great price. Vivid Seats is the top source for tickets for all the live events you might want to go to. On their site, you can sort by price or look for seats in the section and row of your choice. You can pick the seat you want. To make things even better, Vivid Seats is giving listeners an exclusive promo code for new customers to receive 10% off your first ticket order to save even more money. Just go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers can use promo code ROLLINGSTONE, that's R-O-L-L-I-N-G-S-T-O-N-E, for 10% off your first Vivid Seats order. Every purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee, from the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more. Vivid Seats has it all. Download the app and enter promo code ROLLINGSTONE for 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. We were talking about Harry's cultural taste, musical taste, which I think we'll get back to. But I did want to hit a different note for a second. And let's start by hearing a moment from Harry in concert. Can I read this? I'm going to come out to my parents because of you. Are you coming to Where are they? She's in our hotel room. How far away is the hotel? Uh, four miles. I think if we're real, what's your name? Grace. And if we can get it as quiet as possible, what's your mom's name? Tina. If we can get it as quiet as possible, I'm going to tell Tina before you go to the Tina says she loves him. Congratulations. Very happy for you. Tina, she's gay! The whole crowd saying it together. Just what a like super emotional moment. I mean, for me, honestly, like as a longtime music fan who grew up in the 80s, the idea of this something like this happening at a concert was so beyond unthinkable when I was a teenager. It's just a sign that the young generation is going to save us all. Mm-hmm. No, but what is it about Harry? What does it say to you about Harry? Well, just the connection with his fandom and the level of intimacy and devotion there. It's always been a just remarkable bond. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could talk, as you do in the article, about his relationship to masculinity and sexuality and the way he's approaching it, which is, again, in some ways very different from other pop stars. In other ways, you know, again, Bowie, or it's like many things, Harry, it's both a throwback and very new. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, he's always been interested in sort of flouting the sort of gender cliches that his generation inherited. And that's something that he was always doing with One Direction. And it's something that he does now, he's, whether it's his nail polish or his fashion or just the face of being a genderless fragrance, but also in his songwriting. But in terms of his audience, he's very close with his audience and that sort of 
fan obsession, I think is part of that. I mean, you remember the shows last year at mm-hmm. Madison Square Garden, which were just absolute frenzy. Yeah. And I think also for not only having a huge female fan base, but also a lot of queer fans. I saw a lot of young female presenting fans who were wearing suits, who felt comfortable, who felt like really empowered to not only use him as a style icon, but also have him be a supporter of their gender identity, whatever it is, their sexualities. Like having someone who can make music and also exist as kind of pillar of being free in your identity and being free in the way that you express yourself, I think that's super powerful to see for a lot of young people. It seems to me that some of this, it's related to his charm and his intense comfort with himself. He's someone who's... I think was almost born comfortable in his skin in a way that's very inviting to other people and allows him to proceed from a place where he's not defensive of anything. He's not trying to prove anything about himself or his masculinity or sexuality or anything. I saw that when I interviewed One Direction for a never written cover story. Well, never finished cover story because for weird reasons we yanked the thing, but I spent a lot of time with him and I saw him as a teenager. He was tremendously comfortable with himself, tremendously confident and tremendously charismatic as a kid. One of my favorite anecdotes in your piece, this is someone who got Van Morrison to smile in a photograph, which the world has never seen Van Morrison smile in a photograph. Even he had to admit that that was a very unusual photo of Van Morrison to see. Honestly, I saw that photo and I thought, what is going on? (laughs) What in the name of Madam George is going on? I have been looking at photos of Van Morrison for a very long time and he just does not smile. I think the last time he smiled was maybe he smiled at a donkey on the cover of Tupelo Honey, but (laughs) that's it in terms of his smiling career. That's evidence of his charm and his effect on people, but also on on his heroes. So it it was really sweet when Carol King posted something earlier this week when she saw that Harry had played his album to me in the studio where she made Tapestry, which was A&M Studios, which is now Hanson Studios. But I didn't recognize the name Hanson Studios. And for some reason, and he was arranging a really weird time to listen to it, but he really wanted to listen to it. Henson Studios, Studio B. And it was only when we were there and listening to the music, and he said, well, you know what happened in this room? Carol King made Tapestry in this room. And just that level of obsessive fan detail that he has, it's very deep in his bones. And of course, it's sacred ground to him in terms of his music, but it's also a way of connecting to this long musical history that he's part of. But also, I love that Carole King was just like, I love that we have Studio B in common. (laughs) And I love that like a lot of that sort of fan obsessiveness that he has with music, he has with movies and with books and how, you know, if people recommend something to him, he's going to read it and he's going to like really fall in love with this piece of literature, this like the Pulp Fiction, getting the bad motherfucker wallet when he was a kid, like stuff like that. I think that was such a great look into Harry that I love to see. (laughs) Yeah. Also, I think in terms of his level of comfort with the obsession and devotion of his fan base, I think he understands because he's a fan himself. Mm -hmm. And as he said, we're all just music fans, and I'm just a fan who happens to make some. Mm-hmm. And I think this connects with him and just that sort of ease with which he communes with his audience. Last year at Madison Square Garden, I've been going to shows at Madison Square Garden for a very, very, very long time. And I had never felt the floor bounce up and down before. During Kiwi, people were so intense that the floor was wobbling up and down. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is completely bizarre. And afterwards, I was asking a few people who were there, just industry people, and I said, okay, Did anybody else notice? And everybody said, the floor. And nobody had seen anything like that before. The musicians in his band, they were terrified. They felt it very much. Mitch Rowland, his genius guitarist, he's someone, he said, I never went to arena shows. 
until I started playing arena shows. So I don't know what's normal. So he said, this was really scary. And what I always do is I look over at Adam, the bassist, and see how he's taking it. Because he's an adult. He's experienced. He's been around. He's seen it all. And he said, when I saw the expression on Adam's face, I thought, okay, this is it. We're all going to die. And Sarah Jones, his drummer, she said, I was just trying to reach the drums because they were moving across the stage. (laughs) But just that level of frenzy, Harry totally understands from the inside because he's that kind of fan himself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some musicians are like that, but not all. And in fact, it's a minority, I would say, of musicians who have that gene in them that's almost like the same as a rock critic. You know, there's ones you can think of, famous ones, like Elvis Costello is like that. Like, he could have just as easily been a rock critic because he's obsessive in his knowledge of stuff. And there are other people like that, but it's always interesting when that manifests itself in the body of a Harry style. It got down to like, he's arguing about Steely Dan now. He's wrong about Can't Buy Thrill His Steely Dan takes are terrible. For some reason, he's not big on pretzel logic. I don't get that. I love pretzel logic. (laughs) It's strange to be sure. And then he said he went through a big wings phase, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's obsessive about wings, which is Paul McCartney's post-Beatles band. And they made albums like London Town and Back to the Egg. He talked about this vinyl bar in Tokyo where he used to hang out and the bartender didn't have any Wings records. So Harry brought in Back to the Egg because he needed to hear it every day. (laughs) Wasn't it Arrow Through Me that he was? Yes. He loves Arrow (laughs) Through Me. He had to hear that every day. Yeah, I was jealous of how he spent his birthday in a Tokyo hi-fi bar reading a novel and that's who he is you know we've talked about these hi-fi bars are amazing they have them in Tokyo and now they're starting to have them in LA where it's just like you know a $50,000 stereo and a rule of silence and I love that that's where he enjoys spending his time yeah for the birthday for that day of reading that was specifically a classical hi-fi bar but same kind of thing like Rule of silence, everybody just like listens. Yeah, that level of devotion. What else were you kind of surprised by or delighted by in the music he was citing? You never heard the Donny Hathaway Jealous Guy? I couldn't believe that. That is an amazing version, it but I'm glad he likes so it. so unbelievably great. <laughs> I had never heard that. It sounds like Benny and the Jets. It's awesome. Donny Hathaway actually does some of the best covers. I'm, I'm a big fan of his rock covers in particular. I'm just catching up now with his deep cuts. But yeah, Harry knew it. Harry is diving deep in many directions, clearly. But let's hear Donny Hathaway sing Jealous Guy for a second if we can. Yeah, it actually, it, it almost comes close to a mashup of Benny and the Jets and Jealous yeah, Guy. But it's yeah. amazing. I don't know which one came first. Also, like he had this thing in, in one of his cars where you just yelled the name of the song at the steering wheel and it plays it, like that <laughs> right. kind of thing. And so he was perfect for that because like every song, it'd be like, oh, have you heard this? Have you heard this? So we were singing Rich Girl. And of course he was Hall and I was Oats. I'm always going to be Oats with Rich Girl, but especially when Harry Styles is is being Hall. (laughs) And uh, I said, you know, like, because he's a big Nina Simone fan. And I asked, are you a fan of Nina Simone's version? And we, we had to hear that. And then he wanted to hear Donny Hathaway's Rich Girl. Probably a song that you're much more into than I am, Brian, but one that really surprised me. He said, this is a song I've been feeling really deeply lately. And he's called for... Let my love open the door. Uh, no, I'm not, that's, not one, that, that's not one of my favorite Pete Townsend songs. But yeah, no. same. I, <laughs> I said, wow, I did not see this one coming. And when sung by Harry Styles in a moving vehicle, Let My Love Open the Door is awesome. <laughs> so where do you see this uh, life and career going? You were saying that people were assuming that he'd become like a star of romantic comedies and maybe this was, music thing wasn't. And part of that is because this is a guy who was in Dunkirk. Like he could do whatever he wanted. He can act. He has, trem- as we said, tremendous charisma. But it seems like this is 100% where his heart is, his music. Yeah. One of the fascinating things about him is that he's at a point where he could do anything. He could go into movies. He could go into TV. He could do 
anything that he wants to with this level of fame that he's achieved. And what he wants to do is get a dulcimer lesson from the woman who built Joni Mitchell's dulcimer. That's what he wants to do with this level of fame that he's achieved. That's fascinating. And take mushrooms and lie in a garden and listen to wings. Absolutely. <laughs> but what do you see for the future of his music? I mean, I'm liking that he's really taking his time with every decision that he's making. I think he's really being smart about what he aligns himself with. He's kind of built a family with the band and the collaborators that he's working with. It's great to see that he's working with the musicians that he worked with on his debut album and also toured with and bringing them in into this like little, you know, home of how he turned the studio into and having that sort of connection with them. And, you know, clearly there were a lot of like the rumors of him being in the Elvis Presley biopic and like in Little Mermaid. But I think it's really great to see him sort of take his time with a lot of these decisions. And I hope that he has a, a super varied career. He was great in Dunkirk. It'd be great to see him do more acting as well and do other things outside of it. But it's very clear that whatever he's doing career wise is going to be a very carefully executed decision and kind of taking his time with recording albums and making films and doing everything in sort of a very careful way. We were talking about the very fascinating fact of the Stevie Nicks Harry Styles bond, a cross-generational bond that seems to mean a lot to them. Stevie even got away with referring to Harry's old band as in sync because if you're Stevie Nicks, you can get away with that. But tell us about the origins of this connection and where it's led and what you saw of it and all of that. It's just a beautiful spiritual kinship. On stage at Wembley Stadium, she called him my little muse when she dedicated <laughs> Landslide to him. And they've always been super tight on this wavelength the famous carrot cake that he baked her for her birthday mm -hmm. a few years ago. At one point, when we were driving in LA, we drove past the Troubadour, and I'd never actually seen the Troubadour before. And he said, that's one of my all-time favorite music memories is being there. And, you know, Stevie came out at one of his first solo shows mm -hmm. and did Landslide with him. He loves Stevie almost as much as Britney does. <laughs> it's tough competition. <laughs> does he have a favorite Stevie album, solo album? Do you talk about that? He loves all the Stevie yeah. deep cuts. Like you and I, he loves The Other Side of the Mirror. Great. He's yeah. Perfect album. Yes. He, he goes very <laughs> deep with the solo Stevie. Yeah. It's quite strange that he was actually present for what was probably Fleetwood Mac's last public appearance with Lindsey Buckingham. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Yeah, the Music Hairs concert in 2018. Yeah. You were there, right? Yeah. And it was the Music Hairs tribute concert with Fleetwood Mac. And it had like Lord perform, Brandy Carlisle, like a lot of people were performing. And he introduced Fleetwood Mac. He performed The Chain with them. They did a couple of songs, but Harry, part of that sordid, tumultuous Fleetwood Mac history, and Harry Styles is part of it. Yes, there on their last <laughs> night, yes. And he loves Britney almost as much as he loves Stevie. Every time I'd mention Britney's name, he would interrupt whatever I was saying and say, I love Britney. <laughs> It might be his worst flaw as a person is that he can't stop interrupting me to talk about how much he loves Britney. <laughs> Who his mom loves him? Britney too. He said, oh, you met Rob last year at Madison Square Garden. Britney was there. You remember Britney? And she said, Britney from Rolling Stone. I said, I'm right here. Can we pretend there's something memorable about meeting me? Like, <laughs> Yeah, there was actually a copy of Stevie Nicks, The Other Side of the mm -hmm. Mirror, was actually on the floor, I think, of his apartment when you went there in London. Yes. And speaking of the obsessive attention to detail that the fans have, one of the fans pointed out that our cover story was September 3rd, 2019, and we did a Stevie Nicks cover story on September 3rd, 1981. That's the level of detail these fans bring to it. It's a beautiful thing. I feel like they both have similar sort of relationships with the band that they are famous being part of and also their solo careers. And I think to um, your interview with Stevie from earlier this year where she talked about telling the girls in Heim that they like should do their solo stuff and then come back and have that sort of 
different thing that they're doing mm. and can pursue that and have that be their independent career, but also kind of still loving the band that they're a part of. And I feel like the way that Harry spoke about One Direction as well as his solo career is the idea that, yeah, like maybe one day this can happen again and it would have to be different and have to be on our own terms. But also this is something that's made me appreciate that more and also something that I can have for myself and that I love. And so I think it's really fascinating to kind of think about those covers and also kind of that relationship that they have with their own solo music. And the way that they blossomed as songwriters while belonging to a band where they mm-hmm. were only going to get a, a few songs per album. And, yeah. and it's funny that Stevie and Harry said almost verbatim things about the frustration, not frustration's the wrong word, but the fact that you're writing so many more songs than you're going to be able to use with the group. Mm-hmm. And it's just a very different experience when you're writing and taking responsibility for your own songs. And he did compare One Direction very explicitly to Fleetwood Mac and saying that they have their ups and downs, but it's always going to be... Fleetwood Mac, it's always going to be One Direction. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And but also, like, it's interesting, sort of his kinship with the female rock star tradition of he idolizes Stevie, he idolizes Joni Mitchell, he idolizes Carole King. And identifies with them. Mm-hmm. Which Very is much identifies ver- with which them. Which is awesome and fascinating. He looks up on stage, and I'm sure he loved Lindsey Buckingham, but he doesn't want to be Lindsey, he wants to be Stevie. And that's so cool, you know? Yeah, completely identifies with Stevie. You know, wants to play music out loud in Carole's studio and Mm -hmm. play Joni's dulcimer. He's very, very, very attached to that sort of yin tradition of of rock stardom. Mm -hmm. In general, it feels like he's someone who appreciates his good fortune, well-earned good fortune. But at the same time, I mean, I think when I talked to them, they were two years before I talked to him, he had been working in a bakery, literally, (laughs) which he could still describe quite vividly because he had just been working in the bakery, (laughs) you know, and then they went on the X Factor. This all seems like a million years ago, but it's fascinating to realize how far they come. They went on the X Factor, were put together after they individually, I think, lost, then did not even win the X Factor, which is really funny. And then all this has happened. You could not think of someone making more of the opportunities he was given and using them in such a cool way. I think it's absolutely it's, it's funny. I wrote something about him in 2014, like five years ago, just about what seemed already at the time, his astonishing longevity as an mm-hmm. icon. And I said, try to find a single photo where he looks tired or bored and you can't find one. Yeah. And it's funny because that was five years ago and you still can't find a photo of him looking tired or bored. In a type of of work, it's impossible to overestimate just like how physically and emotionally draining it is to be in a band that big and that it just did not seem to take that toll on him. Yeah, and I I think everything about One Direction should not have worked in the time that it happened and also everything about the music that they're making that it was past the American Idol Prime X Factor creating a massive boy band seemed like it should not have worked the way it did. Not even winning the show that season, but also having a bunch of fans mobilized via social media, which was also very new at the time and having a fandom be created through Tumblr, through Twitter and having them really want this to work and want them to exist. It really was unprecedented at the time. There was this whole thing where the American fandom started before they were really officially in America. Yeah. There was an American fandom that got into them through through YouTube and Tumblr, and then it built up. And then when they actually started being promoted here, it, it caught on fire. But I think that's really connected to the, the fervency of the fandom here is that, you know, it was this sort of a DIY fandom. They found them on their own and became fans of a group who were still just on British TV. You know, And it's I mean, like, like yeah. American boy band audiences notoriously finicky like NSYNC Backstreet Boys New Kids on the Block like they had to break in Europe before they could come over here like they had albums out in Europe and hit singles 
long before American audiences even cared about right. them. Backstreet Boys had like 15 years yeah, in they Europe were, before yeah. they were. Yeah, yeah they yeah. were really famous yeah. everywhere else. And so it's really fascinating that, that even like American audiences wanted these five British boys who just sang and didn't even dance and weren't even like any other boy band before them. And they made it work and they made it happen. They made all of this possible. And I don't think any of them really have forgotten that. Well, that's also a good point for people to realize they didn't dance. They didn't have matching clothes. It was. They were just like they, they five were, like <laughs> class clowns on stage, just kind of singing very well. <laughs> yeah, with very different personalities on yeah. stage, and in their music, also that they all started to write songs. They started to collaborate. Their different songwriting styles were already very clear, even while they were in the band. You know, yeah. you could tell who wrote which song. And something that was inevitable was that these songwriters would want to write songs that they would sing themselves. You know, Harry said, when I was. In the band, I realized every song that I sang, no matter how personal it was, I was just going to sing a few lines of it, and then other people mm. were going to take over. And he said, mm-hmm. I knew I was eventually going to get to the point where I wanted to sing the whole song myself. And there was no lead singers in the band, too. They all sang on every album. Indeed. And they're all making good music individually. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. That's today's show. I'm Brian Hyatt. I was in the studio with Brittany Spanos and Rob Sheffield. Thanks so much to them. And we were talking Harry Styles and One Direction. And we will be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcast. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. And in the meantime, thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.